Hello and welcome everyone to this ESMA Open podcast on highlights in lung cancer 2019. My name is Jonathan Lim and today I'm joined by Professor Sanjay Popat, who is a professor in thoracic medical oncology at the Royal Marsden Hospital in London. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor. Yeah, pleasure. So I'd like to start off by asking you, what do you think are the practice-changing studies in lung cancer this year? Well, John, uh, we've had an amazing round of studies published and presented this year. I know I think we had huge studies presented at uh, ESMO and at uh, World Lung. I mean, I guess the first one that folk will be talking a lot about will be flora, because a lot of uh, folk have been waiting for the overall survival results uh, from that. And then the other one that has really potentially changed things is Caspian uh, in small cell lung cancer. And a lot of oncologists uh, have been following the field, have been waiting for Empower 110 uh, as well. And there's been a whole bunch of other studies uh, that have reported. Would you like to tell us a little bit about these studies and how they might change the way we will treat our lung cancer patients? I think all of the studies have informed us differently. Perhaps it's easier if we just talk about each study one by one. I mean, if I start with Checkmate 227, so that was you know, presented at the ESMO meeting and was one of the trials that you know a lot of people have been following and waiting for primary endpoint uh, results on. It's a really complex trial, about five trials all rolled into one. And we had the you know, primary endpoints which were presented at ESMO. So the trial is fairly complex, but if you break it down into the separate parts, it's easier to understand. It's probably easier just to talk about the pd one positive arm and the pd one negative arm. Uh, if we talk about the pd one positive arm, these are frontline advanced disease, non-small cell lung cancer patients who are randomized either to receive histology-specific chemo nivolumab or nevo-ipi, with the sort of ipi light, uh, which is the BMS schedule. And there are a number of different endpoints. And, um, you know, overall survival was the primary endpoint in that group, in the pd one positive population. And if we look at the ITT population in the pd one positive group, the primary endpoint of overall survival was met. Uh, nevo-ipi is better than chemo. But you have to dig a bit deeper to get the clinical implications of that data set. And the, uh, the, the challenge lies with the fact that chemotherapy monotherapy is no longer our standard for uh, patients that are pd one positive. We have different standards depending on their magnitude of pd one positivity. And if we look at the uh, overall survival for Nevo-IPI, it was very much driven by the pd one 50% or more uh, TPS group. So for that you know, population, it was definitely superior to chemotherapy. And you know, that's nice to see. The real key issue is, should it become our preferred option? Because in the 50% positive group, we all currently have licensed in Europe, uh, pembrolizumab monotherapy on the back of the Kino 042 trial, or histology-specific chemotherapy with pembrolizumab, uh, the Keynote 189 regime and the Keynote 407 regime, carbotaxel pembro or carbo or cisplatin pemetrexid pembro. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we make cross-trial comparisons, which you shouldn't really do because, you know, there, it, there are different st- uh, studies, we see very much a similar hazard ratio for nevo-ipi versus chemo as we do for pembro monotherapy versus chemo. 
uh, as we do for uh, triplet versus chemo. So in, in a, whilst nevoipi is a potential treatment option, I still think there's some debate about where it fits in within our preferred treatment options for that patient, particularly because the adverse event rate, the treatment-related adverse event rate, was doubled for nevoipi than it was for nevo monotherapy. So I think you know, it's a more toxic regime than single-agent immunotherapy, according to 227. It seems to have the same magnitude of hazard ratio as Pembro monotherapy. So, you know, how does that fit in with our treatment options? Therein lies the absolute question. So do you think pdl one expression will help us with that? Well, I think pd one is the best biomarker we've got. It's a very functional biomarker, and it's what we're currently using. And so, you know, I think the paradigm of testing for pd one is not going away anytime soon. And, you know, if you are a believer in Nevo-IPI, then, you know, you definitely do need to know the pd one status because there is no survival advantage versus chemo-monotherapy for the pd one 1 to 49 uh, group. I mean, in the PDL1 negative population, things were slightly different. In the PDL1 negative population, we had a sort of separate mini trial going on. And in this mini trial for patients that were PDL1 negative, they were randomized to either the standard, which is uh, histology specific chemo, chemo plus NEVO, or NEVO IPI. Now, the uh, primary endpoint of overall survival for NEVO IPI wasn't in the PD-1 negative population, so this is an exploratory analysis. Uh, nevertheless, there was a survival benefit for NEVO-IPI versus chemo-monotherapy at a pretty similar rate to what we're seeing with chemo-pembro, a similar magnitude of, of benefit to chemo-pembro. So we do have a potential option there to use it, but it, you know it wasn't the primary endpoint of the study, so there may be some regulatory issues about approval of the regime in that scenario. We'll have to, to wait and see. But so, so putting the whole thing together, um, you know, nevo has a role in the pd one negative patients, has a role in the uh, pd one 50% positive patients. Is it the preferred option? I think that's still uh, a matter of debate. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's where we are. In it. But it's nice to see that there is some positive data and the field is moving forward. But you know the, the field is moving very, very much forward in the in the in the setting of uh, uh, Nevo IPI. BMS have uh, also issued a uh, press release, and we'll have further data coming out at the ESMO I/O meeting uh, very shortly, uh, which is part two of Checkmate 227. And in this um, uh, study, patients are randomised to receive either chemo or chemo Nevo. Now, that study was a negative study. It would be nice to see the data that underpinned that. But it seems that in the frontline setting, Nevo-IPI rather than Nevo-Chemo uh, is the uh, preferred option if you're a believer in Nevo-IPI. And of course, BMS have uh, also issued a press release that their Checkmate 9LA trial is positive. So that adds further to Checkmate 227. So in Checkmate 9LA, patients are randomized to either chemotherapy or a quadruplet of platinum doublet chemotherapy with Nevo-IPI for two cycles, followed by Nevo-IPI maintenance. And that study seems to have met the primary endpoint and uh, of overall survival. So it'd be really great to see that data in due course, uh, presumably sometime in uh, 2021. 
And that will really, I think, firm the position of Nevo-Ipi within our uh, treatment paradigm. That all sounds really exciting. I would probably like to move on now to talk about the EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer. You mentioned the FLORA trial. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so FLORA is a, a really important study. We've been previously presented at ESMO, and it uh, took frontline EGFR common mutant patients, L858R and DEL19, and randomized them to either uh, first-generation uh, EGFR inhibitor gefitinib or allotinib uh, or osimertinib. And we previously knew that there was a marked PFS advantage for osimertinib over uh, standard first-generation EGFR TKIs. But the real question is, is there an overall survival advantage? Because, of course, if you, in the real world, have a first-generation EGFR uh, kinase inhibitor, uh, such as Erlo or Gefitinib, then you might be in a position to acquire the T790M resistance mutation, uh, confirm its presence, and then switch to osimertinib as per the Aura 3 trial. And so, therefore, understanding if there's a survival advantage to frontline osimertinib is really important. And that is the data that we presented in the presidential session at uh, ESMO this year. Uh, so, for the first time, we saw the survival data. And in this study, there was a significant and meaningful survival benefit. I think the hazard ratio was 0.79. Uh, for osimertinib with a median, I think unprecedented median of 38.6 months uh, versus gefitinib or allotinib. So on the face of it, you know, that that is a new practice changing uh, study, which I think just confirms that uh, frontline osimertinib does confer a survival advantage uh, and a meaningful survival advantage over uh, gefitinib or allotinib. But when you look in the data further, there's more questions you know, when we look in the data, we look at the forest plot, we see no survival advantage for patients from uh, Asia and patients with AL858R mutation. That's difficult to interpret. There's a forest plot. These are exploratory subsets. They're not necessarily balanced. I think it's difficult to read a lot into those uh, data sets. But it's an open question about, you know, how we manage uh, L858R. For me, I think osimertinib is still our new standard of care because when we look at the flora data, what we're seeing in the control arm and in the osimertinib arm is that many patients only get one line of treatment and patients deteriorate and progress and have no more treatment. So in that scenario, you cannot predict the future. So it's really important to make sure that if possible, uh, we uh, can give the most effective drug up front and to me, I think you know, osimertinib is best placed in that scenario uh, rather than considering sequencing of first generation to third generation, uh, for example. Yes, I agree. That's certainly something to watch out for. Yeah. Now, in terms of small cell lung cancer, you mentioned the Caspian study. Could you give us your thoughts about this study? Yeah, so Caspian is another really important study. At the World Lung Congress in Toronto last year, we had the a really important IMPAL 133 data, which showed that in extensive stage fit PS01 small cell lung cancer patients without active brain mets. Um, if they were, they were they, in the 133 uh, trial, they were randomised to platinum etoposide 
uh, carbotetoposide, uh, I should say, with or without atezolizumab. And there was a survival advantage for atezolizumab. And so the small cell world has very much been awaiting the Caspian study, which is a very similar study sponsored by AstraZeneca looking at Develamab. And in this study, there were some slight differences. Patients could have cisplatin or carboplatin. Uh, they were randomized either to a control arm of up to six cycles of platinum etoposide, and they were randomized to either receive platinum etoposide for up to four cycles with Dervelimab or Derva plus Tremi. Now, the Derva plus Tremi arm is not mature. We have no data on that, and all the focus is on the Derva arm, which was presented at the World Lung Meeting. And what we do have is a very similar survival advantage for the addition of Dervelimab to four cycles of platinum etoposide uh, chemotherapy with a hazard ratio of about 0.73, you know, which is a meaningful survival benefit in this disease where we have been experimenting in extensive stage small cell lung cancer for the past 15 years with no meaningful benefit. So I really do think that adding checkpoint inhibitors to uh, chemotherapy for fit patients is a really important step change. Uh, for this devastating uh, disease. Of course, many of us are now looking forward in the future, and we're waiting for the uh, Derva-Tremi arm to mature. Does the addition of Tremi uh, add more to efficacy for uh, patients with small cell, or does it add to toxicity and not efficacy? Let's wait and see. And of course, at uh, some stage next year, hopefully we'll have a similar trial, but using Pembro, the Keynote 604 trial. Uh, and will there be a difference using a PD-1 inhibitor compared to a PD-L1 inhibitor? We're all very much uh, looking forward to how this field is evolving. These all sound really good. Um, thank you very much for summarizing so many important and practice-changing studies. I, I think there has indeed been quite a lot of exciting things for lung cancer this year. I would just like to ask you at this point in terms of advances in biomarkers, I just wondered where we are at with circulating biomarkers such as CTCs, CTDNA, and tumor mutational burden in the context of clinical practice. Yeah, thanks. I'll take the um, TMB question first because that's a hot topic and there is lots of data in that field. So initially we were under the impression that TMB may be a predictive biomarker for NEVO-EP. We had previous data presented at various meetings, which were analyses from Checkmate 227, suggesting that TMB might be predictive of progression-free survival in uh, patients treated with NEVO-IFI. But now we have the full data set with overall survival as the endpoint. When we look at TMB in Checkmate 227, which is using tissue TMB with a cutoff of 10 mutations per megabase, surprisingly, TMB is not predictive of a benefit, uh, and in fact is prognostic. So TMB is not predictive in Checkmate 227. So uh, really, if considering Nevo-IPI, then tissue TMB seems not to be a good predictive biomarker. So, you know, I had thought that perhaps that's the end of TMB, but, you know, blood TMB is another biomarker that's been looked at, and it's been looked at by AstraZeneca. So they had a trial called MYSTIC, Mystic randomized frontline patients between chemotherapy, Dervatremi, and uh, Derva. It was a negative trial. It didn't meet the primary endpoint of overall survival with a TPS expression of 25% plus. 
However, when they looked at blood TMB in an exploratory analysis to predict the benefit of Dervatremi, they found that using a cutoff of uh, blood TMB at 20 mutations per megabase, that seemed to be a really good predictive uh, biomarker for Dervatremi. Now, that's important because AstraZeneca have got another trial called Neptune, which is shortly to report, uh, for which we already have a press release. So in Neptune, patients were randomized to either receive histology-specific chemotherapy or Dervatremi. And following the identification that um, blood TMB at a cutoff of 20 was predictive of Dervatremi, um, uh, benefit, uh, the primary endpoint of Neptune has been changed to be uh, overall survival at the blood TMB of 20. Unfortunately, the press release that we have from AstraZeneca says that that primary endpoint was not met. So we're really interested to see this data because is blood TMB totally non-predictive or was it a factor of the fact that it was introduced late into the trial design there may have been biases and imbalances within the study to take account of that or maybe it's been underpowered because the proportion of patients that are strongly TMB positive at 20 is relatively low so we're very much looking forward to more data on that so I think for me TMB I think at the moment a bit of a pause I don't think at the moment we should be using it in routine clinical practice for clinical decision making. But, you know, um, I think we will have additional data uh, coming through which might uh, change that uh, uh, potential decision making. AstraZeneca have got another trial coming through called Poseidon. Uh, in this uh, study, patients are randomized to receive either chemotherapy or chemotherapy with Dervatremi followed by Dervatremi maintenance. Uh, we know that the trial met the primary endpoint of progression-free survival. There's a press release to say it has. We haven't seen any data. We don't know about overall survival, and we don't know about TMB. So let's watch this space. TMB may still be alive. And certainly in terms of um, uh, its ability to predict benefit from atezolizumab, we have data from Roche that blood TMB positive, very high levels at 20 do predict benefit from uh, atezolizumab monotherapy. So I don't think this field of TMB is entirely over yet. Um, pause whilst we readdress the trial data. Tissue TMB seems to be uh, not predictive according to Checkmate 227. Let's keep an eye on the blood TMB field uh, further. Sounds good. And what do you think about CTCs and CTDNA? Yeah, CTC is a really challenging uh, area because it's not easy to implement in uh, clinical practice. So I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of work coming out of CTC work, really exploratory or scientific, uh, showing that you can identify CTCs in patients that had resections and fantastic work from the UK Tracer X Consortium uh, demonstrating that CTCs identified shortly after resection do predict relapse and the genotype of those CTCs does predict the genotype of the metastatic disease in those patients. But, you know, it's a difficult technology to implement the scale. So at the moment, that's very much uh, scientific exploratory data. And we've, you know, very much want to see how we can expand that further into routine clinical practice. But that, I think, is some way away. When we're talking about ctDNA, then really, I think we've got something that we need to start thinking about implementing quite significantly. So ctDNA 
We've all been using it in the Aura 3 indication in our EGFR mutant patients who've been started on the first or second generation EGFR kinase inhibitor who then progress. We check our ctDNA in our patients for E790M uh, genotype, uh, and that's uh, quite useful. However, you know, we can now do assays with ctDNA using NGS, They're using different chemistries, uh, which can either pick up single nucleotide variants, mutations, can pick up copy number changes such as amplification, and can also pick up structural variants such as fusions. And these are really important because uh, patients who progress on frontline osimertinib often have a number of different resistance mechanisms which might be detectable on ctDNA, and they may benefit from targeting that particular genomic uh, aberration. But perhaps we need to be starting to think about using ctDNA not as a drug resistance mechanism identification, but as a target identification mechanism, using it up front in parallel with tissue NGS. And there's really nice data sets uh, from North America where patients were allocated to receive either tissue NGS or tissue NGS plus uh, ctDNA NGS. And it beautifully demonstrates that both technologies are complementary. ctDNA picks up tier one druggable variants where tissue misses it and pick, and also misses uh, tier one druggable variants in a small number of cases where tissue picks it up. Uh, and we know that's a problem with ctDNA that sometimes with lung only disease, we don't pick up uh, the circulating tumor. Uh, nucleic acids. But the important thing is that ctDNA is quicker to do and get a readout from time of venipuncture than it is from time of saying, I want a tissue diagnosis. You've got to organize the biopsy, the tissue's got to be processed, it's got to be uh, assessed by immunohistochemistry, it then needs to go to the NGS lab. That all takes an incredible amount of time. It's much quicker to do by ctDNA uh, NGS. So I think this whole field of clinical implementation of ctDNA NGS will move quite quickly over the next few years. Yes, I think there's certainly quite a lot of food for thought there. And these will continue to be ongoing areas for research. And finally, just to finish, there has been quite a lot of hype for targeting KRAS, particularly in the past year. Would you like to tell us what you think about it and where we're at with this in lung cancer? Yes, we talk about oncogenic drivers, EGFR, Alcros, BRAF, RET, MET, but actually the grandfather of them all is KRAS. You know, that's the first oncogenic driver that was discovered in the late 80s to be an oncogenic driver in uh, non-small cell lung cancer. And we've been trying to drug it thereafter. Uh, and we've tried all sorts of strategies, uh, but you know, historically, it's been really difficult to, to drug. Now, on the basis of new chemistries, we have a really exciting set of drugs coming through. Uh, and the first lead compound is AMG510, which is a allele-specific or mutation-specific KRS inhibitor G12C. And that's really important because you know, this is quite a common genotype and occurring in about 15% of patients can occur in smokers as well as never smokers. So there's no easy way of picking up this genotype other than testing for it. We're already routinely testing for KRAS uh, in colorectal cancer. Many centers are routinely testing for KRAS anyway in lung cancer. Uh, but with AMG510, we have the first cut of data uh, from a phase one study. So it is very limited data, very small numbers of patients that have been treated, but the majority of patients 
on the waterfall plot are showing evidence of tumour shrinkage. And I think that's incredibly exciting uh, in uh, a disease, KRAS mutant non-small cell lung cancer, where really we've got very few, if any, molecular targeted therapies and really very little success in trying to drug this genotype. So we're very much looking forward to larger data sets, larger numbers of patients uh, being presented. Is the drug uh, active? Um, how active is it? How durable are the responses? What's the progression-free survival rate? Uh, what is the intracranial efficacy rate? The toxicities so far seem you know, remarkably good with very few grade three plus treatment related adverse events. Is this real? You know, when we treat more patients, we'll have a better understanding of what's going on. What about the genomic architecture? What about patients with LKB1 mutations, P53 mutations? Does KRAS behave differently in that data set? Uh, what happens if we have other markers of activation of the MAP kinase pathway like PIK3 kinase uh, aberrations in the background? You know, how does that impact on the signaling of KRAS. So lots of data still to come through, but this is definitely an exciting area. Sounds really exciting. Well, thank you, Professor Popat, for your time today. You have nicely summarized the practice-changing studies in lung cancer this year. And now to conclude, would you like to tell our audience what you're most looking forward to next year? Well, I would just say keep an eye out for all the major meetings because we have got major data sets coming out. By, you know, by the time this podcast is presented, we'll already have data on, on an important trial that was previously presented called Empower 110, where tizolizumab monotherapy seems to be superior to uh, platinum doublet chemo. Uh, we'll have data on those patients according to 22C3 clone uh, IHC testing, SP263 testing. Uh, that will be really important. The trials that I mentioned previously will be presented, Checkmate 9 LA, Poseidon, uh, Neptune, Keynote 604. We, there's another trial in mesothelioma, Checkmate 743, randomizing patients to Nevo-Opi versus chemotherapy. Uh, maybe that might be mature enough to, to hear about in 2020. You know, there's going to be a lot of action still happening in uh, the field of thoracic malignancies, so stay tuned. Excellent. That sounds great. Thank you very much, Professor Popat, once again. For our listeners, you can find more podcasts on the ESMO Open homepage, and please follow us on Facebook and Twitter for updates.